Well, again, we do have a very uh, interesting passage here this morning, and I want you to have your Bibles open. Uh, we've been uh, studying the book of Acts, and just want to get into that story flow again. After the resurrection of Christ, things started happening pretty fast, actually. Uh, Jesus was with the disciples for 40 days, teaching them, reminding them of what he said before he died, reminding them what it meant that he was alive, giving them instructions. And then when they saw him go back to heaven, they had to do what he said to do, which was to wait for the Holy Spirit to come and then to be witnesses. Sure enough, the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. They started speaking in tongues and people were hearing the gospel, the truth about Christ in their own language. And then Peter spoke, uh, basically told them, you guys just killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. And so what should you do? And many believed and were baptized and became followers. The church grew from about 120 to 3,000 on Pentecost. And then some really special things happened. All these people were into a new relationship with each other. They were enjoying each other's fellowship. They were in each other's homes, having meals together, taking care of one another. Those that had more, even properties and material things, were selling them and giving them to take care of other people that didn't have any. And it was just the sweetest time of fellowship you can imagine. And that was going on for a while, but then uh, Peter and John got themselves arrested. The uh, Jewish leaders were, again, greatly disturbed that this uh, momentum that Jesus had started was still going on. And so they arrested them and said, you know what, they were amazed at their teaching, amazed at their confidence, but they said, regardless, you must stop telling people about Jesus. Stop teaching in his name. And these two fishermen looked these religious leaders who were used to having authority and power in the eye and said, what? We should listen to you instead of to God? We must proclaim that Jesus is alive. And so that goes on into another section in chapter 4 where again we see them together and in this close fellowship and praying and they've just been told it's now illegal for you to witness. And the thing they do is go back, get all the believers together and pray to God that he will help them be more active as witnesses. Give us boldness. Do miraculous things among us so that people will know we are teaching and proclaiming these things in Jesus' name. And so the church was growing very rapidly. In fact, uh, it probably grew to bigger than 10,000 within just those first early months there in Jerusalem. That was a big deal in that city. And so then we get into uh, this story. But I want us to actually pick it up on chapter 4, just a few verses before this story in chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to chapter 4, verse 32. And there are Bibles in the pews if you didn't bring one. All the believers were one in heart and mind, verse 32. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own, but they shared everything they had. Now, wouldn't that have been a fun church to go to? All of one heart and one mind and sharing possessions. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. So they weren't listening to the religious leaders. They were proclaiming the gospel. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So here's a picture of this church growing. They're witnessing faithfully. People are being encouraged. And as they're responding to the love of God and the Spirit of God and 
in engaging each other, sharing meals together, they're aware some people among us have needs. And I have so much. And some of them decided that they wanted to serve the rest of the body by selling what they had and bringing it. Can you imagine this morning if somebody came in and said, Pastor Barry, you know, we have an extra car at our house, and I just became aware that there's some people at church that have a need. So I sold the car this morning, and here's the money. Please see where it's needed. Wouldn't we say, whoa, that's an interesting story. Well, somebody else said, well, actually, we have a, we have a summer home, and you know, we, we've enjoyed that, but we actually realize there's some people that have such a need that goes way beyond us having that comfort and enjoyment. So we sold that home. Here's the money, church. Please use this to honor God and to bless the body. Don't you think those stories would be told around church? People would be aware of that? And that was the reality of the Spirit of God in their midst. It was not show and tell. It was responding to the love of God and the mercy of God just pouring over them. But in the midst of that, Barnabas had an extra field. This is the same Barnabas who would later travel with Saul, who became Paul, and be a great missionary and uh, such a great encouragement to so many people in the church. But early in the church's life, he sold this field and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Basically, use it as you see fit, was what he said. And after that is when we get into this story. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. And so you see, the church was experiencing this spirit of peace and harmony. In the Old Testament, when God called Israel out of Egypt, he called them to experience something we call shalom, the peace of God, the the peace of God ruling in their midst. And part of the instructions he gave to that early community was that they should share with those who had need. He set rules about how they could loan money to one another and even... uh, allow each other to be enslaved or to take someone else's property and that would have to be given back. And ultimately, he said in Deuteronomy 15, however, there should be no poor among you. That was the expectation that God set. But it was very little realized in the life of Israel. As far as we can tell, there weren't many cases of them actually doing these things. But here it is. Now God's doing a new work in his church and there's a spontaneous generosity coming out. People wanting to give what they have to bless and care for others. And Ananias and Sapphira are watching this. And they observe, you know what? You get a lot of attention when you sell something and give it. People talk about you amongst this whole camp. And I think the leaders, you get to go and put the money right at their feet so they know you're a player. They know you're somebody that is a person that is spiritually minded. That's a good thing. So Ananias and his wife decide to imitate what Barnabas and others had done. They come together and connive a way to do this that will get them the attention without the full cost. They're going to keep some of the money, but give enough money that people think that must have been what they got for that property. And so uh, that was an amazing uh, change of direction from those people who were responding to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was motivating others. These two are looking around on a horizontal level and seeing the people there and wanting to have the prestige that came with spiritual obedience. The Bible says they were free to give or not to give. 
Peter says, while you owned the land, nobody asked you to sell. This was not a socialist plan where everybody had to bring what they had and the disciples decided who to sell what and who to give the money to. They were free to own it and they were free to sell it and give it. And Peter says, even after you sold it, you could have kept half. It was totally up to you to decide what to give. That money was yours. God had given it to you. You could decide how to use it. And so the problem wasn't the gift. The problem wasn't the amount of the gift. The problem was that their desire, the thing they longed for, was the approval of men. They wanted to impress people. They were more concerned what people thought about them than literally what God thought about them. This is a classic picture of the flesh versus the spirit. The Spirit had been encouraging people to do things for the right reason in the right way, and there was joy in the whole fellowship because of it. And now here's a couple that says, well, we're not sure where God is in this story, but we see a way to connive and do something, so we get all the attention and the approval, but it doesn't really cost us that much. It's a win-win, they thought. And it was totally giving into the flesh as opposed to responding to the Spirit. It's a total opposite of an act of faith. The eyes of faith see the things that are unseen. Eyes of faith understand that God is the sovereign king of the universe, creator and sustainer of every breath we take. And he sees everything we do. He understands and knows. We, nothing is hidden from him. That's what the eyes of faith see. For Ananias and Sapphira, all they saw was people around them and what they could do to deceive those people and have those people think well of them even though it wasn't totally true. And they totally missed the fact that they were doing that in full view of the king of the universe who was watching. It was as if God didn't exist, you might say, in their minds. It was as if everything that was happening in the church was just an act. People were just doing this. They're just pretending to be spiritual. We'll pretend to be spiritual. They get strokes for that. We'll get strokes for that. It was total denial of the reality of the Holy Spirit building the church. And at the heart of this sin was the act of lying was the decision they made together as a couple that they would lie to the apostles, they would lie to the church, and if anybody asked them, did you sell the property for such and such, they would agree to lie so that people would think they gave it all. So they planned to deceive those people. And I want to tell you, lies destroy trust. And without trust, you can't have intimacy. If we don't trust each other, we're not going to get very far with each other in relationship. That's just the nature of how that works. God gave some commandments, you know. One of them was, you shall not murder. Well, murder is pretty hard on a community. If we came here to Christ Church and we thought, you know, on any given Sunday, somebody might shoot somebody over a cup of coffee in the commons, we wouldn't feel very close or safe with each other. We'd be kind of guarded. We'd be watching our back. And so God says, don't murder. Fortunately for us, it doesn't happen too often here at Christ Church. If you're a guest, you don't need to worry about that. As far as I know, it's never happened, but you know. God also said, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is something else that destroys community. Because if we can't trust each other with our most precious relationships and know that we have respect for each other, then it makes me very uh, tempted and tested about being close to you. If, If you think adultery doesn't tear up a community, you should see what happens when it really does happen. And so God said, don't commit adultery. Because he was concerned about the community. And then, after he said that, he said, don't steal. 
Now, these people were going from house to house and, and offering hospitality to each other. If I invited you over to my home, which we've had some people to our home, it's a great thing. I love having people and being together for meals. It's a very rich thing. But if I had you come to my home and I was suspicious that you're probably going to steal something, you say, excuse me, can you tell me where the restroom is? Not only can I tell you, I'll follow you because I'm a little concerned about what you might be putting in your pocket on the way. I mean, if I think you're a thief, I'm going to have a very difficult time being in close relationship with you. So God said to this community, don't steal from each other because it's a breaker of trust. But then after that, he got to the ninth commandment which was, do not lie, do not bear false witness. Now these others, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, we're pretty sensitized to that here at the church. And we kind of take care of those things. We'd be really shocked if any of those things happened. But my concern is, how often are we willing to live with this ninth commandment being broken? Which is to say, we lie and deceive each other. And lying breaks trust. And that breaks community. I think we pray loose with this command at grace cost. Husbands and wives who can't trust each other because they don't know if they'll tell the truth have such a difficult time to build any kind of intimacy in their relationship. Parents, have you ever been with parents who have a child they don't know if they'll tell the truth or not? So afraid they're going to get a call from the police. Hey, was your son over here doing such and such on such a night? And that parent knowing, I don't know what my son was doing. And if I ask him, I don't know if they'll tell me the truth. And so that parent living in that nightmarish experience of thinking, my own child I can't trust because they don't tell me the truth. Lying costs dearly, and we see that. And in a church, the sin of lying and deceit perhaps does the most damage because we don't see it like all those other sins and push it out with the same kind of concern we would push out murder or even adultery or stealing. And I have to say, the really tough thing is, at the heart of their sin of lying was their desire to impress and please other people. And I am guilty of that. How often do I come to church, you know, on my mind is, I wonder what people will think of me this morning when I do this, that, or the other. Instead of saying, am I really tuned into what God wants and what God requires of me and focused on the good of blessing others? Am I willing to speak the truth even if it means revealing that I'm less than people think? Or am I actually very anxious to only put my best foot forward so that people will think well of me? You see, the same temptation that was true of Ananias and Sapphira is true of us in many ways. We do want to put our best foot forward. It's not as if we should come with a a whiteboard on our chest that says every sin we committed in the last 72 hours. At the same time, we should not hide. We should not pretend. They were pretending. We should not deceive. And ultimately, we should not be as concerned about what people think as we are about what God thinks. And that was really, what was their sin. Uh, These ideas of uh, fearing men more than God is at the root of so many problems. Sometimes we measure ourselves by what others think rather than what God thinks of us. And I guess in another way to put this is we get more focused on performing than being. Trying to do what people will expect or be impressed by rather than actually being honestly a child of God, a sinner saved by grace, journeying to the place of being less and less captured by those sins, more and more free to obey God, but with humility and honesty all the way on that journey. That's what God calls for us to do, and that's what builds community. And lying and deceiving and uh, manipulating each other or deceiving each other stops that growth of community. Well, Peter said something pretty amazing to Ananias. 
and uh, to us as well. He points out that basically Ananias and Sapphira have let Satan, the father of all lies, fill their hearts. In other words, he recognized the Spirit of God was working in so many people like Barnabas. But when this thing happened, Peter had the insight to realize this was not from God. This whole thing of deceiving and trying to mislead us, that is from the author of lies. Satan has got hold of your heart, Ananias. You've listened to him instead of to God. You've let him tell you how to make the best life you can make. And you've quit listening to God. And so in listening to him, you've gotten caught in his trap, Ananias. And what do we do, church? Because Satan is lying to us all the time. We get so many messages every day about how to make the good life, how to really be successful and happy. And a lot of it has to do with just put on an appearance of something as opposed to actually being something. And our hope is found in being students of God's word and asking God's spirit to work to help us see ourselves as God sees us and to see truth and reality as he sees us and to see his sovereign rule over everything as is real. And those things can break the power of Satan's hold on us. Otherwise, we get really caught up in his lies. Another point that is obvious in this story is that Ananias and Sapphira were also caught up in materialism. They had an abundance. They had what they needed and extra. They had the ability to sell this property and turn the money in or turn in half the money, whatever they wanted to do. But for some reason, they couldn't stand to let go of all of it. They had, that thing had a hold of their heart. And they thought, we, we want to love God and impress people, but we also want to love money and hold on to that. We can do both of those things, can't we? And Jesus had warned so clear in his teaching, you can't love God and money. And so what they thought was within their power to do, hold on to this money, actually Satan was using that power to entrap them. They thought they were keeping something and all they were doing were enslaving themselves and making themselves servants of that money. So much so that they would risk lying to the apostles and the church and God himself in order to keep some of that money, which meant so much to them. And don't we have that same kind of issue? I mean, this, set, this sermon cuts a lot of ways. But the fact that money gets such a hold in our hearts over and over and over again. In our world, you know, I remember my English professor who uh, was teaching us some literature, and we thought we were going to come out with the point that love makes the world go round, but she said, let me just cut to the chase here, kids. Money makes the world go round. It isn't love. And, uh, and I, you know, there were so many ways we get that message, and so many ways it brings us security and comfort. And this story here tells us what kind of danger it causes our hearts because their love of money got them in really big trouble. So let's look at what happens with uh, Peter's discipline of them. Verse 5, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Can you imagine, as she's thinking there, we did agree that. He said he was going to say that. I've got to say the same thing. I don't know whether she was totally on board with this or she let her husband persuade her. We don't know the chemistry between those two, but we know they had connived together to do this. And Peter set a trap for her, didn't he? Yes, she said, that's the price. And Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the man who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. 
Then the young man came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church. The whole 10,000 people heard about this. Don't you think you'd hear about it this morning if that happened here at church? I mean, can you imagine? There's no question that this spread throughout the whole story. And basically, uh, the question is, what was God doing? Isn't this too severe? Isn't this too heavy for us to even think about? Isn't this more like something that would happen in the Old Testament under the law than in the New Testament under grace? We have these real concerns about this story, and I think there's some things that we need to realize. In the first place, it's clear that swift discipline was what God was bringing to bear here. And the swift discipline was because he was doing this new thing and creating a baby church. And it was so important that they learn how to walk with God and please God. And it was so important that Satan not get in and start this whole spirit of deceit at this early time. I would have to say that discipline was severe. Uh, Some might think that Peter was a bit of a hypocrite here because he had denied Christ three times and sworn he didn't know Christ and been forgiven and restored and was in ministry because of that. Why wasn't he then a person of grace with these folks? Well, it's interesting to realize that God was doing a special thing in a special time. And this reminds me of a story from when Israel was coming into the promised land as a brand new baby nation. Joshua was leading them. And they went to Jericho, and they fought against Jericho in the most um, bizarre fashion, actually. Instead of using all their military power or all their numbers or the weapons they brought with them out of Egypt, they just marched around the city seven times. And on the seventh day, seven times, blew the trumpets, and the walls fell down. But they were given some instructions. It was so important that they understand God was doing this. They weren't doing it in their own strength and their own power and their own might. And the instructions were this. When you go in, basically all the things that have been used for false worship, you don't touch those things with a 10-foot pole. And all the gold and silver are to go into God's treasury as he's building us as a nation. You don't keep the gold and silver. So that was the instructions were given. But a man named Achan went in and he saw some really cool things some artifacts, some things that had been used in pagan worship. And he took those things. And he saw some gold and he saw some silver and he took that. And he went and he hid it in his tent. And no one knew. So he thought he got away with it. Just like Ananias and Sapphira. And then after that, there was another battle they were called to in a place called Ai. And it wasn't nearly as formidable as Jericho. So they sent scouts and they said, oh, we don't need to send the whole army. We'll just get them tired from the march. Just send, you know, a few thousand troops. They'll take care of it. It'll be a piece of cake. The Israeli soldiers go up there. They lose the battle badly. They run for their lives. I think about 26 were killed that day. And Joshua is pulling his hair out. God, what happened? It was so important that everybody in this land be afraid of you so that they would protect us. Now people are going to say, we don't have to be afraid of the Israelis anywhere. God seems to have abandoned them. What happened? He says. And God says, there's sin in the camp. Someone totally disobeyed what I said and what I instructed. This is what it says in Joshua 7. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. And they have put them in with their own possessions. The very same thing Ananias and Sapphira did, this guy Achan did at the beginning of the nation of Israel's time coming into the promised land. And Joshua, having lost 26 men because of this man's disobedience, took Achan and his family and his animals and they took them outside of the encampment and they stoned them all to death. And it was a reminder to everybody that we must obey God. And so here we are in the New Testament. Wasn't it a time of grace now? Isn't everything forgiven? You know, someone has written a book called Love Wins 
And the love of God is an enormously wonderful thing, and it's true, and we'll have all of eternity to explore it and experience it. But God didn't quit being holy in the New Testament. We still serve a holy God. Sin still matters. We are under the shed blood of Christ, and our sins are forgiven past, present, and future. But it doesn't mean we can or should play games with God and take him lightly and think, I can do what I want now because God's out of the judgment game. God's only in the mercy game. There are consequences to sin. And the church learned this early on, and we need this lesson. That's why I feel God has put this into the Word for us. It isn't that we don't have grace and forgiveness. God is a God of grace. In fact, this severe punishment, you'll be glad to know, doesn't happen very routinely, does it? If it did, how many of us would be here? But God is gracious, slow and slow to anger and merciful. But nonetheless, we are fools if we play around with sin and think, well, I can manage sin and God doesn't care that much and nobody knows and I get away with it and it's really working out quite well for me. Basically, there's no integrity between you and God and there's a broken integrity in our fellowship when we harbor and hide sin. We're required to be honest with our sin. That's where God's given us a gift of real confession and real repentance, which turns from those things. No pretending. Let's be who we are. And let's acknowledge when we fall short of what God requires of us. So what should we do in, uh, in terms of church discipline? What does this give us as a pattern? Well, the first thing we see is that sin must be confronted. And so many times it's just easy not to. Frankly, I can tell you from experience. You might think, well, is that really my business? Or am I really in the right position to do that? Or won't they think that I'm being judgmental and self-righteous because I'm a sinner too? How can I speak to that person about that? But what we see here is that sin must be confronted. Speaking the truth is essential. Now, speaking the truth in love, as Ephesians says, means don't use it as a weapon to tear somebody apart, but use it as a tool to protect and build them up. That's what it means to go to a brother or sister and speak to them openly about sin. We are glad that God is patient, but we can't take his patience for granted. Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And I want you to really get this point because a lot of people think they get away with sin because they've done it. They've got a pattern of sin and nobody in church knows. And it seems like they keep getting away with it and they're just not worried about it. They kind of think, I've got this uh, peaceable arrangement with God. He kind of knows that I know it, but we put up with it. And actually, what you don't realize in that case is that the very judgment of God, instead of you being struck dead like Ananias and Sapphira, might be that you've been turned over to that very sin. And Satan's been allowed to get a hook in your life. And that's the judgment of God. Because things that are hidden keep you entrapped and enslaved. And when you bring them to light through confession and repentance and sharing with brothers and sisters in your journey, that's when you become free from those things. And so the judgment of God often comes to us in this area by not having us have a big explosive thing happen, but by the fact that this sin just goes on and on and on. That itself is the judgment of God. And fortunately, he will show us mercy if we seek his mercy. So why are we afraid to do church discipline today? And actually, this church does do church discipline. Not perfectly. It's a very real challenge for all churches. But we have tried to speak truth into situations as we see it. But one of the reasons we don't do it more often is because we're afraid of being seen as graceless. Who are you to judge? Don't you know everybody sins? How could you point out someone else's sin? But frankly, another thing we're afraid of is just that people will just go down the street to another church. You know, people take their membership in church so lightly these days. 
but we're supposed to be bonded together. And if I'm speaking the truth to you about a sin in your life with a desire that you come to a point of freedom in that, and you can say, hey, if you're going to talk to me that way, I'm just going down the street. I've seen this happen. And I know when you go down the street, you'll be as enchained by that sin as you were when I spoke to you that day. And what we're looking for is God's grace to work so that you become free from that sin. Lack of discipline really hurts our unity. Uh, There's no way that we can actually be together if we don't deal with sin on a regular basis. Being long-suffering with one another, I don't have to speak with you and you don't have to speak with me every time I sin. But when you see a pattern of sin that I'm being entrapped in, you owe it to me to talk to me about it. Whether it's pride or whatever it is you see. And the same for those of us pastors into your lives. Um, It basically requires that kind of walking in the light which we do when we walk with our sins exposed and forgiven and cleansed, that allows us to have the deepest, richest fellowship with one another, as it says in 1 John 1, 5 and 7. The other thing about not doing discipline is it leaves the individual vulnerable. If I really love you, and I know you're getting entrapped in sin, I will not stay away and leave you alone. I might say, well, I don't want to get mixed up in that because it, you, know, you might think badly about me or you might tell other people that I'm judgmental. But actually, if I love you and you're getting trapped in that thing, I've got to come to try to be part of the rescue team to help you and not leave you in Satan's hand. I was uh, serving in another church, not this church. I want to make that clear. And uh, with one of the elders there, we were going on a road trip. We had a lot of time to talk. And he started telling me a story about a time years before when he'd been a full-time worship leader in a church on staff and he had an affair with a woman in his choir. He was the choir director. And uh, it came to light, the pastor found out about it. The senior pastor found out that he'd had this affair. And uh, he had a meeting with this pastor. He's kind of expecting he might get fired or some very serious thing going to happen. And the pastor says, basically, don't do it again. Don't tell anybody. That's what he told him. And so that night, he's back leading worship, Sunday night. And he went on for about a year, but his soul was so uh, in, in uh, difficulty and in turmoil that he eventually resigned and got out of ministry. And years later, I was talking with him about this, and he said, I, I, I so wish that that pastor could have walked with me and helped me bring that thing to light and repent of it and confess it in the right way and bring healing into our community again. But that whole thing of hiding it, it just killed me that we did that. And this is something that I've experienced in other places. It is a good thing when something hidden comes to light. That's what the Bible says. So we are called to confess and seek God. Basically, this passage, the church ends with living in the fear of God, which we think of as a negative thing. I'm here to tell you the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. We serve a holy God, and it's a good thing we do. And living in fear of him does not mean we're unaware of his love and his mercy. In fact, it's a fear of him and a desire to please him and obey him and then finding him being graceful and merciful and long-suffering with us that causes us to love him more and more and realize how loved we are. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The question I have for you is, whom shall you fear? Do you fear men or do you fear God? Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your word, and I thank you for your grace and mercy. Lord, I am in need of your grace and mercy, as we all are. But I'm also thankful that we recognize that sin is serious business, and you are serious about not having it be in our midst, in our own lives, in our fellowship. And so I ask that you would take this passage and do business with our hearts, Lord. Don't let us run from this one. Let us hear what your Spirit has to say, what we need to confess Lord, I also pray that you would equip us as a church with with, uh, gentleness and love and a bit of fear 
to approach one another and to deal with the sin in each other's lives, not to tear down, not to judge, but to build up and to protect and to love in the deepest way so that we might know that purity of fellowship that comes when we walk in the light. And I just ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.